listening to the weekly sermon podcast from Mountain City Church. In this series, The Gospel of Luke, Jesus for All, we walk through Luke's account of the life and ministry of Christ. All right, if you have your Bibles, please turn with me to Luke chapter 7. We're going to continue our walk through the book of Luke. As I said last week, as we come to chapter 7, there's two basic themes within the chapter. It's kind of booked in by this idea of, of faith. He's shown us the faith of the centurion. Next week, that he's going to show us um, the faith of, a, uh, of the woman of the city, as Luke describes her. And sandwiched in between, and, and the second theme within um, this chapter is this idea is, who is this Jesus? And today, what we're going to see is John the Baptist. We know that the forerunner of Christ, the one that, that preached, that, that said that there's one coming, the Messiah is coming. Um, he's going to have a question. And um, today, we're, we're going to see uh, how Jesus answers his question. It kind of really highlights this question, as, as Nate has already alluded to um, several different times, that who is this Jesus? This is, is he the Messiah? Is he the, the one? And, and we can affirmably attest, yes. Yes, he is. So, yeah, today's message is, is one of those messages where it's like, oh, man, there's not a lot for me to do here. Yes, there is. There is the main thing for all believers to do, and it's just found in that title. Believe it. To believe it. To actually believe what the Word of God says and who Jesus is. So let me pray real quick, and, and we'll dive in. Father, we just thank you again for this time. Thank you for your Word. Lord, thank you for Jesus. Father, I pray today again as we look at, at, at John's question. Are you the one? Lord, that, that maybe we're here today and we don't know you. And we're asking that question. Are you the one? Maybe we're here today in doubt as John shows us a little bit. Has come into our life. And we doubt things. And we doubt you. And we're trusting in other things. Father, may today again be another day where we just lift you up and allow the Holy Spirit to help us see you for who you are. Lord, that we may have a desire to worship you because of all that you have done for us. We need that desperately. We ask that in Jesus' name. Amen. Now, just like John, many of us sitting here, we have doubts. We run into doubts, right? We have doubts about the future. Sometimes we have doubts about our ability to get something done, maybe in our workplace, or maybe mom and dad. I know that any, anyone that becomes a parent, there's a lot of doubts there. Like, hey, can I actually get this person to, to becoming an adult, right? So we all have a doubts, future, abilities. Sometimes we have doubts about our relationships. Sometimes we have doubts about our health when things start to break down and What's going on with my health? Why, why am I feeling this way? Sometimes we have huge doubts, bigger doubts, like doubts meaning the meaning of life. Like, what is the meaning of life? Like, am I on the right path? Is, is going back to the Bible, is the Bible true? Is there, is there another way? And sometimes, if we're honest with ourselves, and we always need to be honest with ourselves, sometimes we even have doubts about God, right? Like, okay, I know this or I see this, but it's not quite working out the way I think it should or even the way your word says. But God, sometimes we even have those doubts. And sometimes we even wonder if God is, is really there. When our prayers seem to bounce back off, off the ceiling, like we're praying, but we're not hearing nothing. We feel 
Sometimes we just feel alone. Like if we're, even though we're in the middle of a crowd or we're with our family, we just feel alone. It's like, God, are you there? Is it, are you really real? We have this doubt. We are tempted to doubt whether the Bible really is the Word of God. Should I live my life by what the Word of God says? Sometimes we doubt that. Sometimes we doubt the hope that the Bible gives us. Like, do I, should I believe that? Is this real? Did Jesus really raise from the dead or some of these other ideas true? Or whether we ourselves will ever experience, will I make it? Is what the Bible says and what many people say is whenever I take my last breath here on earth, I get to be with Jesus. Is that, is that really real? Do I really living off of that and believing that? Or is there some doubts that's crept into my life? The next question from that is like, where do these doubts come from? Well, sometimes they come from Satan who tempts us not to believe what God has said in his word. Sometimes they do. Sometimes. We can't blame everything on the devil, but sometimes. He has many minions that work for him. and Sometimes they come when we're bored. Stop and think about that. I mean, I, I know um, another pastor always says that there is nothing um, more harmful than in the world than a bored man, right? Because they'll get themselves in trouble. <laughs> so sometimes when we're bored, we... We think things, or when we're tired, or when we are suffering from physical illness, or, or just life coming in around us. Sometimes they come, doubts come when we're grieving the death of someone we love, because we just don't understand. Maybe we have an expectation of how long we're supposed to be on this earth, and they were taken away maybe too early, or maybe it's just someone that you just dearly, dearly love, and you're processing it. So doubts come in that way. Sometimes we just give in to sin, and we quench the Spirit. And because we're quenching the Spirit, He's not working in us, so therefore we wander in to doubting things. Often the doubts come when we're disappointed with God, isn't it? We're disappointed, like we, we think things are going to happen a certain way, but they don't. Or, or maybe you're, you're thinking, oh, maybe things should be better. We thought we knew what God would do for us. Many times, that's because m- many times our prayers are more suggestions than they are pleas, right? Well, God, I'm about to do this, and you need to make this work out. This is my plan. You need to bless it, all right? But all of those things cause doubts. We doubt. We're human. Sometimes we doubt when God fails to grant us the physical healing, the financial prosperity, or the family situation we prayed for. We are tempted to doubt whether he really is the God he claims to be. Whatever the reason, we all have doubts. Every single one of us. Sometimes they almost seem to threaten the foundation of our faith. I know there's a lot of talk about deconstruction and And there's the root of it. It's doubt. They're doubting who God is and what the Word is. If that describes you, there's nothing wrong with you. You're just human. You're just born in a fallen world with a fallen nature. Yes, we have been redeemed. We're saints who struggle and on a path to sanctification. But there's nothing wrong with you. You're just human. You're just like John, John the Baptist. 
This may seem surprising because if any man seemed certain about God, it was John. From the womb, John was set apart to bear witness about the coming Christ. He did so with boldness, having no reservation about what others thought of him. None at all. He just told it as it is. Kind of like Paul Washer. Just tells it as it is. John went into the wilderness preaching repentance and declaring with complete conviction that God was coming in judgment. It's like he's, he's coming with, with the spirit and fire. He's coming with judgment. John's whole life was grounded on the bedrock of his faith in God. Like, this is what I'm to do. From the womb, he was anointed to do so and filled with the spirit to do so. Yet even John the Baptist went through the dark night of the soul when suddenly and unexpectedly he had his doubts about Jesus. John was in prison at the time, having been locked away by the wicked King Herod. By the way, why was he locked away? Because he told him about his sin. Because <laughs> he was bold. He told him, yeah, you're sinning. So he threw him in prison for it. From time to time, his disciples would come and tell him, what was happening in Israel? Because remember, in first century, if you're in prison, there's no four, you know, three square meals and TV and other things. If someone didn't come and bring you food and take care of you while you're in prison, you probably died. So, you know, his, his disciples are coming and taking care of him, and they're telling him of the things that Jesus is doing. And it's just not computing with them. Because John's looking for the judgment. John's looking for something different. He's trying to rely on his own understanding. But it's just a little bit different the way Jesus does things as often in our lives as well. Naturally, they told him about his teaching, his miracles that he's performing. But somehow this failed to meet John's expectations for the ministry of the Messiah. Luke writes in verses 18 through 19 where we pick up our story. Disciples of John reported all these things to him. And John, calling two of his disciples to him, sent them to the Lord saying, Are you the one who is to come? Or shall we look for another? See, doubt has crept in. Are you the one who is to come? Or shall we look for another? John was in prison. In his mind, he could not figure out what God is doing. Which allowed doubt to creep in, which raised his stress level. <laughs> like, I'm in prison, and I'm waiting for him to come and, and, and lay down the hammer on these people so I can get out of prison and, and the kingdom comes and all these other things that John was probably rehearsing in his, in his mind. I would imagine that some of you are there right now. Your stress level is high and some of you know of what John is experiencing. You're trying to figure out why is things happening the way they are and your stress level is, is up. Those are in the middle of it, know that. And those of us that may not be in the middle of it right now know that it's coming. There'll be times in life where that's exactly how you feel. We all need the same thing. Every single one of us. Those in the middle of it, those that know that it's coming at some point in time in the probably very near future, especially if we are living as Christians in this fallen world and the culture that we find ourselves in today, it's coming. We all need the same thing. We need the hope of the gospel. 
We need the hope of the gospel. We need to be reminded of who Jesus is and what he has done for us. And that's exactly what he does for John. Why is it every Sunday that we come together and that's exactly what the person behind this pulpit does is remind you who Jesus is and what he has done because that is what we need the most. That is what we need the most. Not only was John in prison, but he had certain expectations about the Messiah. Summed up well in chapter 3 of Luke. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit in fire. So he's looking for that judgment. This meant that the Messiah would bring spiritual salvation. But it also meant that he would come in judgment to destroy the enemies of God. As John preached about God's wrath, he said, Even now the axe is laid to the root of the trees. His winnowing fork is in hand to clear his threshing floor. These are the things that John preached. This is what he's looking to happen. John probably thought that God's judgment would come right away. So where is it? Where is the judgment? According to the reports John was getting, Jesus was preaching sermons and healing people. Where is the judgment? You know, sometimes grace is the greatest judgment. When you show people grace, they actually feel convicted from their sins and what they might be walking in. Showing them the same grace that Christ has shown us. But that's not what John wanted. John wanted the militant Jesus, right? With a more aggressive timetable. So he asked the question, are you the one who is to come or shall we look for another? It was a good question to ask and crucial question for everyone to answer. Every one of us need to answer that. Jesus, are you the one? Or is there another? After all, that's why Luke wrote the book, right? So that we may be certain on the things that we've been taught. Jesus, are you the Savior whom God promised would come? Jesus, are you the one true hope for the world? Jesus answers these questions of Luke 7 by showing us and John at that point in time who he is and what he has done, declaring the privilege of trusting in him, and warning us to stop looking for someone or something else. So he shows us who he is and what he's done, declaring the privilege of trusting in him. Do you believe it's a privilege or a right that you trust in Christ? I would imagine that that's the way you believe that or the way you think about that is, is all how the gospel has been presented to you, right? But it's a privilege that we get to trust in him, that he has sent Christ in the spirit to change our hearts so that we can trust in him. And then warning us to stop looking for someone or something else. The interesting thing is Jesus answered John's question, not by giving him a little bit of of judgment or showing him that judgment that he is going to bring out judgment, even though the judgment is going to ultimately fall on Jesus himself. What did he do? He just continued the work that he was doing. And as as Nate alluded to, it's the same work that he quoted from Isaiah that he's going to do. He's going to set the captives free and heal the sick and proclaim the good news to the poor. And it's the same thing that we're called to do, by the way. And it could be really summed up real simply. We are to show mercy and to proclaim the gospel. We are to show mercy and proclaim the gospel. So when you get up tomorrow and say, what is the purpose for my Monday? Well, you, if you're leaving your house, you leave your house and you go show mercy and you proclaim the gospel. If you're, if you're home with your kids, you show mercy and you proclaim the gospel. That's what we are to do. 
So we pick up our, our story in Luke in verse 21. In that hour, he healed many. So again, Jesus is going to go do what he's been doing. In that hour, he, he healed many people of diseases and plagues and evil spirits. And on many who are blind, he bestowed sight. Jesus gave John's disciples a dramatic <coughs> demonstration of his miraculous power. I'm just going to keep doing what I've been doing. Just in case they missed the point, he said to them, in verse 22, and he answered them, Go and tell John what you have seen and heard. The blind receive their sight, the lame walk, lepers are cleansed, and the deaf hear. The dead are raised up. The poor have good news preached to them. And blessed is the one who is not offended by me. So he just tells them, this is who I am, and this is what I'm doing. These are the things, this is who I am. And this is what I'm doing. Jesus tells John's disciples, go and tell John what you have seen. What you have seen. On the basis of this evidence, what is the obvious conclusion we should reach about the true identity of Jesus? The facts really speak for themselves. Proving that Jesus is Savior, Christ and Lord. And I can stand up here until I'm in blue in my face, but you will not believe that until the Holy Spirit works on your heart and takes the veil off and allows you to see that's who he is. That's who he truly is. When John the Baptist heard that what Jesus said, he would have recognized that his words came straight out of the Old Testament. So you want proof? Okay, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to heal some people and, and do some things right here in front of your, your, your disciples' eyes. And then I wanted to point this and connect this and give you evidence by going back to the Old Testament and showing you, John, because you're going to know the Old Testament really well. I'm going to go back to the Old Testament. I'm going to show you this is exactly what the Messiah is supposed to be doing. And that's what he does. Isaiah was the prophet who said, your dead shall live, their bodies shall rise. He's speaking of the Messiah. That's Isaiah 26. Then the eyes of the blind shall be opened, and the ears of the deaf unstopped. Then shall the lame man leap like a deer, and the tongue of the mute sing for joy. That's Isaiah 35. Isaiah also prophesied, The Lord has anointed me to bring good news to the poor. That's Isaiah 61.1. So not only did Jesus do these things, but he also connected it to the Old Testament, saying that this is what Jesus will be doing, that what the Messiah will be doing. So John, here's your evidence. Here's your evidence. By echoing these words, Jesus was giving John a biblical and practical proof that he was the Christ. As he performed his miracles and preached his gospel, Jesus was doing the very things the Bible promised that the Savior would do. The very things that the, the Bible promised he would do. The Old Testament. Jesus was saying, therefore, that we should trust in him for salvation. This is the point of verse 23. Blessed is the one who is not offended by me. It is a privilege to be able to trust in him. These words also come from Isaiah as he prophesied about the coming Savior. Isaiah 8 says, And he will become a sanctuary and a stone of offense and a rock of stumbling to both houses of Israel, a trap and a snare to the inhabitants of Jerusalem. And many shall stumble on it. They shall fall and be broken. They shall be snared and taken. 
In other words, he's predicting that although Jesus is going to do all these things, he's going to fulfill all these um, prophecies of who he is, there's still going to be people that not believe, that not trust. These are troubling verses. They mean that even when God comes to bring salvation, some people will reject him. They will stumble over the rock of salvation. They will be offended by every idea that they need Jesus to be their Savior. And that's really the stumbling block. Is most people, and, and I know that you guys have conversation with those that don't believe. And I know that that's, that is the essence of what's going on. They don't believe that they're, they need a Savior. They're a good person. Right? They don't need a Savior. Why do I need a Savior? And don't dare talk about sin because then that's just, well, you go by the Bible. I don't believe the Bible. So therefore you can't say that I'm sin because the Bible is the one that defines sin and all that. I know that, that, that that's what you guys hit into, run into all the time. They stumble over the rock of salvation because they just don't need, see their need for a Savior. Do we see our need for a Savior? Not way back here, whenever we can point to the day that we believe God saved us or we did something to think that we're going to get saved because we did something. But today, do you need him today? Do you know that you need him today? Jesus was warning John and us not to be offended by his saving work. Do not stumble over Jesus because he is not meeting your expectations or because you are having spiritual doubts or because you are disappointed with God. Don't stumble over to salvation. Run to him. Do not get the wrong idea about Jesus as John did. He is the one. He is the one. If we try to find another savior, we will never be saved at all. But if we accept Jesus and what he has done for us in dying on the cross, in rising from the dead, he will bless us with everlasting salvation. God has given us this promise in Romans 9, 33. Behold, I am laying in Zion a stone stumbling and a rock of offense. And here's the promise. And whoever believes in him will not be put to shame. Trust in Jesus and you will never be ashamed, not even on the day of judgment. Now, Jesus, being the master shepherd, wanted to help John with his doubts, but also did not want others to think any less of John. John was a prophet. He was an instrument of God. He was used by God. So Jesus comments on John's ministry, and this is what he says in verses 24 and following. When John's messengers had gone, Jesus began to speak to the crowds concerning John. What did you go out into the wilderness to see? A reed shaken by the wind? What then did you go out to see? A man dressed in soft clothing? Behold, those who are dressed in splendid clothing and live in luxury are in king's courts. Obviously, John was none of these described there in verse 25. He was hardly a reed blown about by the latest winds of public opinion. No, John was more like a mighty oak tree, standing firm against any opposition. 
Nor was he the kind of man who stood around the palace wearing fancy clothes and eating fancy food. Everyone knew that John more of a camel skin type of guy, and he kind of ate locusts and wild honey. Kind of rough, rough around the edges type of guy. John the Baptist actually was one of the most popular teachers in Israel. But it was not because he told people what they wanted to hear. Or because he lived the lifestyle of the rich and famous. Do you know what you call when you gather a bunch of people into a church, call it a church, and then tell them every single Sunday what they want to hear? We call it the judgment of God. Because they're not hearing the gospel. That's scary. Because, man, there's a lot of churches that promote this. That breaks my heart. John never told people what they wanted to hear. That's why he was in prison, remember? He, He was trying to help Herod not to go to hell. Because of sin and showing him salvation. He just rejected it. But you know, there's another way that that happens is, is when you gather a bunch of people and, and, and week in, week out, you tell them how awesome they are and how wonderful they are. Man, you're just making them twice the child of hell. Because yes, every Sunday someone should be standing behind this pulpit telling you things you don't want to hear. Hopefully, they're from the Word of God, or they better be, or our elders are not doing our job. Yes, it should be uncomfortable. But we change and we grow that way. That's how God designed it. And it's a good thing. So what was the meaning of John's ministry? Why did people go to hear him preach? Jesus tells us, verse 26. What did it What then did you go out to see? A prophet? Yes, I tell you, and more than a prophet. This is he of whom it is written, Behold, I send my messenger before your face, who will prepare your way before you. I tell you, among those born of women, none is greater than John. Yet the one who is least in the kingdom of God is greater than he. It's like, oh, no, no, don't don't think John, because he's having these little doubts. Obviously, you know, Jesus did everything among a bunch of people. So it's not like they had, like they went to a separate room, they had these little conversations. All these conversations happen around everybody. And that's why we see Jesus always teaching things. Because he's always correcting and and changing and, and helping people see who he is. So he heard the question. The people around him heard the question that John's disciples asked. He's like, no, no, you don't think nothing less of John. He did exactly what God called him to do and anointed him to do. And by the way, what made him great, what made John great, not was because he was a great communicator. It was the message. And the message was the fact he was pointing to Jesus. It wasn't John's personal identity, but his special calling to prepare the way for salvation. What made John important was who he was pointing to, Jesus. Since Jesus was the Messiah, John was more than just another prophet. He was the man promised to serve as the Messiah's messenger out of Malachi 3.1. But don't miss what Jesus says about you. Now, rarely can we have a, do we find a direct coalition like that where we can almost say, oh, he's, he's actually talking about us. Yes, he is. 
Don't miss that. He says this. Yes, the one who is least in the kingdom of God is greater than John the Baptist. If you are in Christ, if you're saved, if you're a born-again Christian, you are in the kingdom of God. It doesn't give us a puffed-up thing, but it shows you how much God loves you and cares for you. This inheritance that He has waiting for us. What a remarkable thing to say. Because of His witness to Christ, John the Baptist was the greatest man who ever lived up to that point. And even the newest, weakest Christian is greater than John. It's kind of what it's implying here. This is because we have experienced the finished work of Jesus Christ. That's why. Not because we're awesome. Not because of anything we've done, but because of what Christ has done. Because we're on this side of the cross. And therefore, by the witness of the Holy Spirit, we know things that John could only dream of knowing. As Nate alluded to, we know that Christ rose from the dead. And making everything completely, absolutely valid and true of His ministry, who He is, and what He has done And what it means for us in our salvation as we trust in Him. We know the the mercy of Jesus in forgiving our sins through the cross. We know that. We know that the guilt and shame have been taken away. We no longer have to hide. What a glorious thing it is to know that our guilt and shame have been taken away. We know the power of Jesus in rising from the dead. The same power that that dwells in us. That helps us fight sin. We know the love of Jesus and the free gift of eternal life. And don't think John was not saved. He was saved for the same reason we're saved. Faith in the Messiah. Faith in Jesus. We may have our doubts. But we should not miss out on the extraordinary opportunity we have to believe in Jesus Christ. We may have our doubts, but we should believe. John himself would be the first to tell us that there is nothing greater than belonging to the kingdom of God. What a privilege it is to trust in Jesus. But unfortunately, not everyone sees it this way. The one way to enter the kingdom of God is through Jesus. And he finishes by warning everyone to stop looking for someone or something else. Everyone has to make a choice. There's no both and or halfway. You either accept Jesus or you reject Jesus. You can't walk the line. Well, in this part, I'll I'll accept him. And in this part, I reject him. When he does something I want him to do, I accept him. When, he, when he's doing, saying things and I'm reading things in the Bible that I don't like, well, I'm just going to reject him. It doesn't work that way. It's not a both end or a halfway. You either accept him or you reject him. Verse 29 says, When all people heard this, and the tax collectors too, they declared God just. So here it is. Those that have actually been declared to be sinners and and far away from God by the Pharisees and Jewish people are the ones that say that God is just. Having been baptized with the baptism of John. But the Pharisees and the lawyers rejected the purpose of God for themselves, not having been baptized by him. They, They rejected it. 
So now, why are the parentheses? That's because I know most of you are using the, the English Standard Version just so we can understand why the parentheses are there. The English Standard Version treats these verses as an aside, placing them in parentheses. However, it is not entirely clear what the people heard. And that's really just the argument here. What did they hear? Maybe they heard Jesus, which is the way the ESV has it, because they used the word this in there, right? They heard this. Refers back to what Jesus has been saying. But in the original scripture, simply says, when all people heard, not heard this. So it is possible that Jesus is still just talking here. So in either case, it really doesn't change the meaning. Jesus is commenting on something they heard previously when John the Baptist was preaching and people either declared God just or rejected the purpose of God. Either way, the point is really the same. When some people heard the message of salvation, whether they had heard it earlier from John or now from Jesus, they accepted it by faith. They declared that God was just. In other words, they admitted that God was right about their sin and about everything else. So it doesn't matter if if that little passage there means specifically about Jesus or of what they heard from John and up to this time. It all comes down to the same thing. God was right about their sin and about everything else. The proof that they are willing to confess their sin was the baptism of repentance that they received from John. Repent and believe. To apply his teaching about faith and repentance... Jesus drew on an analogy from daily life. This is verses 31 through 35. To what then shall I compare the people of this generation? And what are they like? They are like children sitting in the marketplace and calling to one another. We played the flute for you, and you did not dance. We sang a dirge, and you did not weep. For John the Baptist is coming, eating no bread and drinking no wine. And you say, he is a demon. The Son of Man has come eating and drinking, and you say, Look at him, a glutton and a drunkard, a friend of tax collectors and sinners. Verse 35, Yet wisdom is justified by all her children. They're making a compare and contrast here. This shows how much insight Jesus had into the true spiritual condition of the people who, who refused his grace. Who were always looking for someone or something else. Jesus understood that it did not matter who preached to them. They simply refused to have anything to do with salvation that God had to offer. That's salvation through Christ. First came John the Baptist, wearing wild clothes, eating strange foods, and preaching repentance. He would not play at weddings. All he ever did was play funerals, crying about the judgment to come, if you think about it. This is the, the, see the compare and contrast that Jesus is pointing out? He would, he would not play at weddings. He's just judgment. So it's kind of like a funeral. John was much too primitive for the Pharisees and far too condemning. He called him out on, on, on their stuff. When he had the audacity to tell them to repent of their sins, they decided that he had to be demon-possessed. Repent? Me? I follow the law. I'm a good person. Have you heard that before? That's what he's saying. Then Jesus came and the Pharisees did not want what he had to offer either. They they rejected John's call to repent and now they're rejecting Jesus. 
All of a sudden, they changed their tune. The same people who demonized John for not playing at weddings. I mean, this is kind of the definition of hypocrite that Jesus calls these folks quite often. The same people who demonized John for not playing at weddings were scandalized by Jesus because he refused to play at funerals. Oftentimes, he would change funerals into joyous because he would raise the person from the dead. Strange as it may seem, Jesus had such a good time that he had a reputation for just partying way too much. What are you doing drinking with those sinners and going to weddings, turning water into wine, stuff like that? Do you see the Pharisees had room, no room for grace. They had no room for John's call to repentance. They had no room for Jesus. How about your heart today? How about your heart today? Again, Jesus, all he ever did was spend time with notorious sinners, preaching about grace and offering mercy to people who did not even deserve it. His story was not a sad tragedy, but a joyful comedy, and Jesus spread this joy wherever he went. This kind of violated their spiritual sensibilities, right? Like, this is not the way the Pharisees did things. As far as the Pharisees were concerned, the way to gain God's blessing was to be a good and religious person. Now, Jesus is coming and saying, no, even though you're, you're right in the middle of your sin, if you trust and believe in me, forgiveness can come to you. It's not about what you have done. It's about what I am, at this point in time, will do in the very near future. Since they did not see any need to repent of their sin, they did not accept God's grace in the gospel. They thought salvation was theirs by right. And they were offended by the idea that it came as a gift for sinners. They were offended by it. How crazy is that? But... Do we get that way? Do we think that sometimes in our hearts we look at certain situations and we're like, man, I've been following the Lord for I don't know how long. I serve, I do this, I do that. And God's going to save that person? Do you know what that person's like? Man, we got to check our hearts when we do that, don't we? We got to see that grace is for all of us. Grace is for everybody. It's not a right. It's a free gift of God. How ironic and how truly sad that Jesus was the Savior the Pharisees needed all along. (laughs) They're the one that they needed. They were offended because Jesus was a friend of sinners. That's the basic bottom line when you look at it. They were just upset that he always hung out with all these sinners. That's because they never thought that they were a sinner. Because they thought that they weren't sinners. They did everything right. So since Jesus hung out with sinners, then Jesus is no friend of ours. But instead of being offended by Jesus, the Pharisees should have believed in him. Then they would have become the kind of children Jesus talked about in verse 35. Not foolish children who try to make God dance to their own tune, but wise children who accept the salvation that God has given The children of wisdom are people who are justified by faith, who are wise for salvation through faith, 
in Christ Jesus. 2 Timothy. The way for us to be so wise is to see our need of repentance and to trust in Jesus Christ for salvation. Anyone who still has any doubts should go back to Jesus. If you're struggling with doubt today, go to Jesus. Learn from his teaching. Look at his miracles. Listen to what the Bible says about his death and resurrection. Stop looking for someone or something else. If you are a sinner who needs a friend, then Jesus is the Savior for you. When doubt knocks on your door, remember who Jesus is and what he has done. Remember the privilege you have been given in trusting him for eternal life. And refrain from looking to someone or something else to restore your hope. Jesus is where we look. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your word. Lord, help us. Thank you for the reminder that when we doubt, when when we think that, that you've forgotten us, but when we doubt in, in other areas of our life, Lord, it is a wonderful thing that we can come back to you, Jesus. You are the rock. You are the foundation of our faith. Lord, thank you that you've given us a faith family to help us remind ourselves in these times of doubt of the good news of the gospel, the good news of what you have done. Father, I pray today if anyone here came in here thinking, I'm just here and I I don't really know if I need a Savior. Lord, I pray that you have moved in their hearts by the Holy Spirit that they may know that they need a Savior. Lord, that they would not look anywhere but to you, Jesus. And Lord, for those of us who have been walking with you, may we be reminded again that we all, all the time, need to come back to you. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you for listening to the weekly sermon podcast from Mountain City Church. To learn more about our church, visit our website at mountaincty.church. Thanks again, and may the Lord bless your week.